Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. So, hi everybody. Good to be here again on another episode of Astela Around the World. We are here today with Brian Hutchings. Brian, thank you so much to be here with us for this conversation. We are very glad and curious to have you here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. So, just a quick intro of Brian's uh, journey. Brian graduated from Jason Madison University with an undergrad degree in music industry and his law degree at a Villanova University School of Law. In 1999, he started as an associate at Omovin and Myers, a global law firm, worked there for uh, over six years. And in 2005, he joined Gerdeson, where he became a partner in 2008. And he has been working for the past 16 years. When not practicing law, he is an avid skier uh, during the winter, and he is also a member of the Okemo Mountain Ski Patrol in central Vermont. So very interesting to be here with our Brian that has a lot of experience in VC and in Latte. Brian, tell us please a little bit of your trajectory and what brought you to specialize in VC and Latte. Sure. Well, I'll... Um... Give you the trajectory into VC first, and then that naturally kind of leads into Latin America. As you mentioned, I, I started my legal career at a different firm, a Melvin and Myers. I was there for about six and a half years doing a variety of work, some MA work, capital markets, lending. But after six years, decided I wanted to do something that was a little bit more personal, interesting, and something that seemed more relevant to me. I was working with a lot of banks and big corporate clients at that firm. So I eventually decided to come to Gunderson because I thought the practice sounded very exciting and very unique, working with technology companies and startups. In many cases, the technology companies were creating products or services or websites that I was using personally. So I had a, a personal interest in, in their success and what they were doing. So I joined that firm. I joined Gunderson in June 2005 to focus on that. So as you said, I've been there for 16 years now and really made that the professional focus of my career. With respect to Latin America, that started to follow not long after I joined Gunderson. About 2006, 2007, I was doing work for some pioneering venture fund clients that were investing early in some emerging markets. At that time, with the exception of China, which was already growing quite quickly, emerging markets were still very new in venture. I think the, the term brick had just been coined at that point in time. So I did a few deals with some of these fund clients in Asia, Africa, Latin America. I think the first deal that I did in Brazil was in early 2007. We helped one of our fund companies buy uh, an, an internet jobs company in Brazil. And that was my first meaningful exposure to the country. But but right away, I, I enjoyed it uh, more so than some of those other emerging markets that I mentioned. I found the the environment and the people in Brazil very welcoming to me as somebody uh, from outside the country looking to do some business there. 
I fell in love with the culture. Um, <laughs> being a musician, I'd already been exposed to some Brazil music and had a window into the culture, but I got to learn more about it and the language and the people and the food and all those things through this, uh, this work experience. And probably more importantly than anything, I got an early view into the opportunity that was in Brazil. At that point in time, 2007, the tech industry and, and the internet industry were still very nascent, very young, but I could see right away that it had the potential for a lot of growth. During that period of time, there were a lot of people in Brazil who were transitioning from old feature phones to smartphones and computers and internet access was penetrating the country very rapidly. And so people were spending more time online. And Brazilians are, are very avid consumers of, of online services and internet. I mean, social media is a great example of that. I think, I think Brazil is one of the top markets for all of the social media companies. And so I could see that this was going to be a big thing there and felt like we had something to, to offer, you know, being a, a Silicon Valley based firm with a lot of experience helping companies grow quickly and scale raise venture capital. You know, I thought thought we had some value to offer to the, entre the early entrepreneurs and companies in Brazil. Just invested time and, and effort in building relationships with them and with the local VC firms and took on um, gradually more and more clients. And our philosophy has always been to try to build and set Brazilian startups for success in the way that we would in Silicon Valley or in New York. In other words, kind of take that blueprint for high growth companies and try to you know, localize it as we need to, but apply it as, as, as closely as we can. And that's, that seems to have worked for us. So today we represent over 150 companies throughout Latin America. About half of those are in Brazil. We represent most of the leading VC firms as well. And another benefit of that is all of that has helped us to attract a lot of, of talent to our firm. So, so today we have about 20 attorneys in New York and Silicon Valley that are focused on this region, many of them having practiced law in Brazil or their other home country in, in South America. So created a bit of a center of gravity for ourselves and continue to take advantage of that and, and try to grow. That's awesome. Lara mentioned something very interesting in your bio and you quickly spoke about it too. So we learned something new about you, undergrad in music and BA for the music industry. We'd love to hear what's the story there and how did that lead to law? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a little bit uncommon. Um, definitely wasn't a pre-law major in college. I got into music early. I Even before I was a teenager, I started playing piano and saxophone and guitar. Went to college um, to study music because that was my passion and what I was good at. My degree is in music industry, as you mentioned, um, which was, I think that's a more common degree now, but when I was in school, there were only a handful of colleges in the U.S. that offered that. But I was trying to use that as a way to get into the, uh, the record business. That was my dream, was to, to work for a record label and um, you know get close to artists and try to help them produce records, get their music out there into the world, have my pulse on what was new and what was cool. I graduated college in 1996 and actually went to law school again with the intention of using that as a springboard into the record business. Um, during college, I, my advisor was uh, actually a lawyer. And from her and others, I learned that many of the executives in the record business were lawyers, served on the legal side, moved over to the business side. So I was trying to get myself on that, that same career path. I graduated law school in 1999 
And uh, my timing was absolutely horrible. <laughs> right plan, wrong timing. Because in 1999, Napster was at its peak and the record industry was being threatened mortally by it. In fact, the record industry tried to sue Napster out of existence. But Napster was doing a very good job of training people to download music for free and, and stop buying it. And so about the time I graduated from law school, a lot of the record labels were were shrinking in size. Um, so instead of hiring attorneys and business people, they were laying them off. So that's why I say my timing was poor. I now look back at that you know, over 20 years later and think that was my first encounter with the disruptive effect of technology. My first lesson about how tech can really rapidly change the world. <laughs> so I changed plans, started doing more work as a corporate lawyer than as an entertainment lawyer. But eventually, as I kind of described earlier, found my way to tech because that became interesting. And coincidentally, I, you know, I've had the chance to work with some companies on the startup side that were creating services for the music business or for the publishing business or for video. In some way, it's kind of come around full circle. And I, I wouldn't call myself a record label lawyer, obviously, but I've, I've been able to dabble into that industry through, through the side that I guess has won the, the battle of history. <laughs> There's a lot of similarities between the music industry and entrepreneurship as far as we know on how the, the bands are created and the effect of uh, Black Swans throughout the career of some of uh, the lucky people so, um, and how they grow, the way that uh, they match the abilities of uh, a tech team to how the band is created. So you have a guitar and a bass and, and this kind of things. And on the other side, as entrepreneurs, you have someone with a tech expertise and then uh, market expertise and, and this kind of things that uh, we normally uh, compare at the beginning of the career. So it might be interesting also to have a very grounded view on the music industry. Very interesting. That's a really interesting analogy. Yeah, not only do you need like the right band members that are complementary, but they need to have the right chemistry so they can stay together. Yeah. You don't want the band to break up while you're building your tech company. It's a very risky business, or as we used to say, in the music business, and now we say in the tech business, it's a hit-based business, right? Things are either a big hit and they make everybody incredibly successful or they're nothing and nobody listens to it. Nobody uses the product after a couple of years. So yeah, a lot of parallels. And Brian, we know that because you have a lot of experience and uh, you've worked with uh, companies throughout uh, the entire life cycle and stages, that uh, you became a coach for a lot of entrepreneurs and people come to you for advice. What are the main topics that uh, founders are eager to discuss and to share with you? And if you could give us a hint of how you help and, and how you support those people. Sure. So we just alluded to one topic that comes up quite frequently with founders, which is you know laying the groundwork for a good relationship among the founding team, you know, planning for longevity um, and keeping the whole team motivated and cohesive as they go through all the stress that comes with a startup, all the drama and long hours and hard work. So we spend a lot of time talking about things like vesting, governance, voting on different decisions and decision-making, you know, how thinking about the major decisions that are ahead if the company is successful and how they want to make those, you know, what level of consensus is going to be required. There's some balance there, right? And like in a perfect world, I suppose everybody on a founding team might have to agree on a particular decision, but that could also lead to deadlock in a company, which isn't going to be healthy for it or for people's interests in the company. So there's, there's an element of balance that we try to find. And each one of these situations is unique. There's no off-the-shelf formula that fits for every founder team. It's a function of how well they know each other, 
their personal relationships, um, the nature of the business, you know, what they're planning for the next couple of years. And it's also a combination of legal advice and personal advice or business advice, for lack of a better term, because we can build a lot of legal structures to try to, to protect a company and keep a team together. But they're no more important than just the personal relationships between the founders and the level of trust. So we try to make sure that that gets the importance it deserves as well. Yeah. And I guess another area that also comes up quite frequently is uh, the relationship between the founder team on the one hand and the investors um, on the other hand. A lot of founders um, have concerns about how they're going to keep influence or maintain influence over their company as it grows and as more stockholders join the company over time. And the market has changed on this um, a lot in the time that I've been practicing. When I first began practicing, there really was nothing special that that founders did they, other than try to give up as little equity as possible. But today, there are a variety of different structures that we see, things like different classes of voting stock, different strategies for board representation, and others that um, have been developed, I'd say, over the last five to 10 years. And so we have a lot of discussions about which of those might be appropriate for a company. Again, there's an element of balance to that that's important too, because in most cases, it's not healthy if a founder has an iron grip control over their company for eternity and, and can make all decisions by themselves forever. That's going to turn off a lot of investors and might prevent some people who would otherwise be good partners from joining you. So uh, we wouldn't necessarily just throwing every possible founder protection into a company possible. Again, it's really about, you know, what are the key things that this particular founder is focused on and how can we address that while still keeping the company attractive and on a path to success? Really cool. Looking through another lens, you also, you have a specialty in cross-border, right? You have contacts with lots of different cultures. You work a lot with Brazil, but you also work with a lot of different companies throughout LATAM. And we would love to hear from you. What do you see across the region? Do you see any cultural differences in BC in each of the countries? Are there any particularities that you'd like to share? On the whole, I would actually say in terms of the legal aspects or, or the financing of the companies, they're probably more similar than they are different. I think what's different is the, the solutions that each company is trying to tackle. They tend to be local solutions. So in Brazil, we're seeing a lot of Right now, for the last couple of years, we've been seeing a lot of companies in the financial technology industry trying to solve um, and address the historically difficult banking market. The banking market in Brazil is has historically been controlled by a small number of large companies who have focused on a very narrow segment of the population. And so a lot of the companies that have been in the news recently or had noteworthy exits um, were companies that were disrupting that industry. In Chile, in contrast, you know, I'd say the companies that we work with there are focused on either health tech, healthcare, or uh, for lack of a better term, like materials or uh, engineering with materials. Um, I think they have quite a strong industry in, in healthcare and bioengineering. Part of that comes from the agricultural industry that they have there. And so there are some pharmaceutical companies that are attracting investments in Chile or uh, NotCo, which is a um, next generation food business that originated in Chile, comes out of that biotech industry. And we could look at um, other you know, examples in Mexico or Colombia, and they're probably you know, more often than not solving the needs of consumers or businesses in those particular markets. 
in all of them though that the uh like i said they're they're probably they're more similar than they are different and the blueprint for building a high growth company is more or less the same which is you know try to create something new um, and innovative that's valuable to its user get them to pay for that you know scale as quickly as possible to box out the competitors and then reap the rewards of your success so that's what we see a lot that's really interesting and brian i mean talking about uh cultural differences. Every entrepreneur dreams about raising funds with uh, US VCs. And we see a lot of uh, differences in how we make business and communicate and how Americans do. I could say that, for example, Brazilians have a lot of more difficulties in, on saying no uh, to people. We normally go around to the answer. And this kind of uh, things where uh, communication on a negotiation process makes a lot of differences. What would be your advice for a Brazilian founder would to, willing to build a relationship with a USBC? I mean, in terms of uh, how to communicate and how to nurture the relationship and this kind of thing. Yeah, that's a great question. There, there definitely are some cultural differences and not just between Brazil and the US, but between Brazil and like the US tech industry in particular, which has a very unique culture. Um, you already touched on one of them, which is I think among USVCs, there's a value placed on being transparent and direct and concise and to the point. People, rightly in most cases, value their time quite a bit here in this industry. And so I think they actually appreciate it if you just answer the question or address the topic at hand and without a lot of circular discussion or vagueness or evasiveness. So that's a, that's a great point, Laura. A couple other things come to mind. One is that I think within the VC industry in the U.S., there's a real premium placed on the reputations of a founder. When a VC is evaluating business, they look at a lot of things. They, they certainly look at the product and the technology. They, they look at the, the financial forecasts and the modeling and the market size. But I honestly think that more than anything, especially with earlier stage investors, they're placing a bet on the founder or founder team. And the most important point in their evaluation is often, do I trust this person? Do I believe what they're telling me? Are they committed to this incredibly hard endeavor we're about to undertake? And so I'd, I'd focus on credibility, predictability, transparency. Being direct, as we just discussed, is, is a part of that. I think that's part of earning trust and being credible is you know, just telling it like it is, even when it's difficult to do that. And you might not get the reaction that you want to get, but I think you'll get credit over the long term for being honest. And then that'll lead people to trust in you and be willing to back you. And then I mentioned commitment as well. <laughs> they, I guess I'd also go back to the comment we made earlier about VCs being, or VC, venture capital and technology being a, a hits-based business. And you know, the VCs here in the US really do believe that. I mean, they, they want your company to be a rocket ship or nothing at all. They're not investing for the slow, steady growth company. There are other parts of you know, the U.S. economy that invests in that, private equity, uh, maybe some parts of the public market. But venture capitalists know that uh, a large percentage of their companies are going to fail. A small percentage are going to earn the returns that pay for everything else. And they want to believe that your startup is going to, or has at least has the potential you know, to be that rocket ship and to be the one that returns multiples of their money. And tied to that, they want to know that you're committed to it as a founder, you know, that you're all in 
You don't have a, a backdoor or a plan B. If you're trying to raise money from a VC, I would find ways to demonstrate that you're all in. I wouldn't have a, a night job. You know, I would make this a full-time job, probably a double full-time job and everything you can do to show that you're committed to it. I think that's going to go a long way with them. But just be sensitive to the venture capitalist's business because at the end of the day, they're, they're a business too. Sure, the, the VCs are they're successful. They'll do very well financially from a personal perspective, but they're also investing capital that has been trusted to them by, by their own investors. And those might be individuals, might be institutions like retirement plans, universities. And in order for them to be successful, they have to deliver returns to their investors. And that means that they're investing in your company with an eye towards making return on that investment. And usually within a five to 10 year timeline, most venture funds have a 10 year term before they're expected to start winding up their portfolio. My point there is just, you know, be sensitive to that and view yourself as a partner with them. You know, they're partnering with you by giving you the capital to hopefully build the business of your dreams. You know, you're their partner because they're hoping that by doing that, they're going to share in your success and provide that back to their own investors. I think if both sides understand the other's perspective, that really helps with the relationship over the long term. No, yeah, those are great pointers. Thanks for sharing with our audience. So you've been working with, with the region for a while now, and we would love to hear your take. You probably heard the saying that Brazil is eternally the country of the future. During the last 30 years, We saw many regions leapfrogging in infrastructure and in tech adoption and showing consistent GDP growth with significant improvement in citizens' quality of life. In your view, what are the main reasons you attribute for Brazil attempt not to take or have taken yet the same steps? Yeah, I have heard that saying a number of times since working in the region. I, and I makes me smile because I don't think Brazilians give themselves enough credit. <laughs> I think you guys have come a long way, uh, at least in the last 15 years that I've, I've been visiting. The thing is, it's just volatile. So it may not always feel that way. It's not a straight path or linear path. It's one that's up and down <laughs> constantly. But when I look at uh, the number of people who are in the, the middle classes now, it's definitely larger than it was 20 years ago. I talked about the tech adoption trends. And those have all, you know, the, the usage of phones, internet, software, all those things has grown over the last 20 years, without a doubt. And that's what's creating the opportunity now that we're seeing with the tech industry. But it's up and down. You know, it could be up significantly for a couple of years and then fall very dramatically the next year, um, often for reasons not related to tech, but to other things going on in the country. I think, I think one reason for that is that some of this, the recent prosperity was at least originally based um, largely on commodities. So I'm thinking about in the 2000s now, you know, a lot of the, the money that flowed into Brazil was for things like oil and metals and agriculture and, and everything was going well as long as those prices were holding up. But then we saw a point in time when, when those commodity prices fell. And I think that led to a disruption in the, in the Brazilian economy. So I'd say that to, to grow more steadily, the country needs to focus and develop on industries that you know, export goods and services that hold their value. So more proprietary value-based type products as opposed to commodity products. And tech is a big part of that. Tech is a huge opportunity to do that because obviously most tech is proprietary and not a commodity. But I think in order to build those kinds of industries and have that type of stability, the country would need to invest in education and infrastructure. And another thing I've heard a lot since 
working in Brazil as those are two areas that have historically been neglected, not the subject of investments. In fact, I think recently we've seen a lot of private solutions attempt to address those. There, there's a, a group of education technology companies that I'm thinking of that is trying to find private solutions for education. We work with some of those companies. But I think if the country could do that, broaden the reach of education to people, raise the general level of education, improve the infrastructure for things like transportation, manufacturing, I think that would lay the groundwork for some of these more stable, um, long-term industries that would really go a long way for the country. That's a very interesting perspective in how we compare our trajectory. And that specifically on the VC ecosystem, in terms of how you see like uh, uh, the the country improving trust and uh, the environment for receiving foreign capital, what is your view? I mean, do, do you have any hints of uh, how we should evolve or what we should be paying attention to in terms of regulation and in terms of uh, aspects to be a more comfortable uh, business environment for investors that we don't have here in Brazil? Yeah, within our industry in particular, there are several things that I think could be addressed that would really facilitate uh, and help startups and tech companies. And they get a little bit technical, so uh, bear with me. But I mean, one topic that comes up regularly are the, uh, the labor laws. And I'm aware that there are labor reforms underway or at least being discussed. But um, the fundamental issue is just how expensive employees are and how difficult it is to scale up and scale down a business um, in terms of employees. Brazil is quite protective of employees, um, especially ones that are let go from their companies. Right? There are some very, at least compared to the U.S., some very generous um, post-employment termination benefits. And even during employment, there are the benefits for employees tend to be more generous than they are here. I'm not as familiar with how they compare it to maybe other international countries. But I know employees are quite expensive, which causes some companies to put off hiring or, or to try to get as much out of a smaller workforce as they can. If um, the overhead was not quite as great, they might actually hire more people and be able to grow more quickly. And then in those cases, when a business struggles and, and is not successful, like I said, very difficult to scale down quickly. And because of the costs of letting people go, they might actually have to pull the plug on a business sooner than they would otherwise, because they have to preserve cash for some of those, those liabilities that are coming their way. Uh, so that, that would be a big one. Um, you know, another area that I think would help if addressed is liability for companies within the same group or, or liability of directors for, for business expenses. So for example, I, I believe that under Brazilian law, a board member, a director, a manager of a Brazilian company could actually be personally liable for labor claims by employees of the company. If there are labor lawsuits, there's a judgment. I think that the director's assets might be frozen you know, while that case is being heard. Or if the case is decided for the employee, the, the, the director might actually be personally liable for paying that. In the tax context, I believe that if one company owes back taxes or unpaid taxes, any company that's considered to be under common control, you know, not a subsidiary necessarily, but just one with a common shareholder can also be liable for those taxes. And so th these things have ripple effects because it makes both founders and investors less willing to serve on the board of a company of a Brazilian business. And some of those affiliate or control group liabilities can become a real issue. For example, it could be something that persuades an investor not to fund 
a business, not because the business has the problems of its own, but the founder has some other company that hasn't paid its taxes in five years. And so their investment is at risk because of that other unrelated company that the founder controls. So that could be quite helpful. And then while I'm while I'm giving my my wish list of legislative changes in Brazil, I'll just throw in the third one, which is um, the, the the treatment of stock options is uh, is a very murky area in Brazil. I guess equity compensation totally. in general. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. yeah. No, but nobody really knows for sure exactly how stock options or equity compensation is going to be treated by the tax authorities. I, there have been a few cases on those topics, but they're very small in number, and there aren't any clear rules that have been written. You know, in contrast, here in the U.S., our tax authority, the Internal Revenue Service, has you know books full of rules about equity compensation, and so they're very predictable. And I think if we could get a greater degree of predictability in Brazil, that would make them more attractive to both companies and employees. And and obviously, that's been a, a really big element of success of the tech business in the U.S. It's, it's a way that these companies share wealth with their workforce. It gets people excited about coming to work for a speculative startup <laughs> that is losing money otherwise. So that, that could make a huge difference if we just had predictability about that. Totally. And every time that our regulator touches into one of those aspects, it becomes uh, worse than it was before. So it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. And while we wait for Brian's wish list to materialize <laughs> and manifest itself, let's go on to a more philosophical question. Brian, we would love to hear how optimistic you are with the future of life and humanity. How far can we dream that our world will create the solutions we need for sustainability? And what are the main issues or problems you would expect innovators to address over the next few years? How does this drive your view? And what do you have to share with us on that? I think that the potential for both progress and its opposite, you know, exists within humanity. You know, both good and evil exist within humanity and in the tech industry. It has the potential to both improve the human condition and also do the opposite, you know, create create problems for the human condition. So it's, it's hard for me to be just by default optimistic or pessimistic because it really is up to us. I think there are some tremendous challenges ahead of us. I think I think about what challenges we should address. I think that things resulting from the growing world population are ones that we should focus on, you know, food supply and security the impact on the climate of having more humans on this earth, prosperity and making sure that uh, prosperity is shared among more than just a small group. You know, So those are huge problems and, and very general problems. We have the potential to, to address them. I do believe that, um, but I don't take for granted that we will. I think it takes effort on humans' parts to, to kind of stay on the path towards improving our situation and improving those things. If we're not careful, we don't invest the effort, we'll go the opposite direction. So I like to think that it's up to us. You know, we definitely have the potential. I, I, it also requires leadership. And, and one of the things that, to be quite honest, saddens me now is I feel like there's a crisis of leadership in the US and Brazil and in other countries. You know, it seems like, and this is not true of everybody, but in many cases, it feels like you know our leaders or political leaders are often catering to extremes or small segments of society is a cynical way of just maintaining their own power. And I, I think we deserve better. Um, I think we need better, you know, if we're going to face these challenges. But again, it's 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 up to us, you know, the, the, the general people to insist on 
they're getting the leadership that we deserve. It, it scares how those guys put uh, democracy in check, right? So it's a, uh, and it, this is also something that uh, creates an anxiety on how we, we will continue to succeed in our rights and freedom of everything. So not only on top of what uh, you said in terms of uh, how we will allow that uh, all those people will live with a good quality of life in the earth, there is also on top of it the idea that uh, we might not have a democracy in place uh, because of uh, the lack of leadership. So it's also something that is clear. Right? We can't can't take that for granted that democracy will stay in place. Um, like I said, it's going to require effort and um, it's going to require you know, the people to say we value this and we see it being eroded before our eyes and that can't stand. Yeah, it's a very good point, Laura. Excellent. Unfortunately, we're heading to the end of our conversation here, unfortunately, because every subject that we touched that we could stay like for another half an hour uh, discussing each one of them and your views are very interesting. We normally do like a final icebreaker, and I would uh, love to ask you what is something that uh, you're currently excited about and something that uh, you're currently scared about. <laughs> okay, I'll start with the scared first. You know, I worry about how long COVID-19 is going to restrict us from traveling and doing business in person again. The last time I was in Brazil was in March of 2020, the week before the quarantines began in the U.S., So it's been a long time and, and I was kind of hoping that would start to resolve itself this year, but now there's growing amount of uncertainty you know, how much longer COVID-19 is going to be with us and impacting our lives. So I worry about that and not knowing when it will be over. But I, you know, I'm excited by what's happening despite that disruption. Despite that disruption, the last two years or 18 months have been really good for technology and VC in the U.S. and Brazil. And I think there's still a lot of steam left in that because of the nature of our practice. We have a front row seat into how much money is being raised for tech and, and for Brazil and how much is being invested there and record levels are being set every quarter. So I'm really excited about that. I think there's still a lot of potential ahead. Real excited to come back and start working with people on building that in person <laughs> uh, whenever that might be. But I, I, I'm really enthusiastic about The, the industry that we're in. I really feel fortunate to be here in this industry at this time. Uh, and so we are as well, Brian, and uh, keeping our fingers crossed for the frontiers to be open and safe for everybody to see each other alive as well um, again. So yeah, last time that, that all of us traveled was, uh, I think, in March 2020. <laughs> so amazing, mm -hmm. right? I think that cross-border has a total different meaning now, a whole new meaning. <laughs> and um, I guess a Stella around the world is a way for us to get closer together. That's certainly helping. Yeah, I'm glad we have things like this, but I can't wait to actually cross a border again. <laughs> <laughs> Show your password to the, the frontier guy. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, Brian, to be here with us and to participate awesome. and, and help us on this uh, project uh, that is uh, very important for us, Estella, around the world. <laughs> that was my pleasure. I'm really grateful for being invited. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.